Hi there. Welcome to the Powerhouse Politics Podcast from ABC News. I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein. Jonathan Carl is out this week, but lucky for us, we've got a deep bench here at ABC News. Joining me is ABC News political analyst Matthew Dowd. Hi, Matthew. Great to be here. Happy to always have a chat about it. All right. And first time on the show, our ABC News congressional correspondent, Mary Bruce, joining from Capitol Hill. Mary? Hi, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, thank you both. And before we get started, I want to remind you, you can subscribe to our show on iTunes and please rate us and leave us a review. You can also find us on Stitcher and check out all of our ABC News podcasts at abcnewspodcasts.com. Let's get to it. It was a somber week, an eventful week in politics as well. We're just a couple of days removed from that awful, deadly nightclub shooting in Orlando, the worst mass shooting in U.S. history. Lots of political fallout, reactions to the tragedy. A lot of it also centering on an already contentious, contentious and now rejuvenated gun control debate. Uh, and, and Mary, you had an opportunity to talk to some folks on the Hill about it. Yeah, we've been running around trying to get some answers up here all week. I have to tell you, the Capitol right now is buzzing as Democrats and Republicans both offer up various uh, solutions that they think can tackle this issue. But we did have a chance uh, to track down some of them. I, I spoke uh, earlier in the week with, with Senator Burr and Senator Feinstein. Great. And we'll talk to that a kind of dueling senators, one Republican and one Democrat on that. We're also going to talk to on this podcast, Michael Eric Dyson, the uh, professor and uh, activist who is calling for a march on Cleveland at the Republican National Convention. But before we get to that, uh, Matthew, it is now one year exactly since Donald Trump became a presidential candidate, came down that elevator and upended all of our expectations. It's, I know for, for me, at least, it's the year that I've been most wrong, most consistently about almost everything in politics. Matthew, what do you make of this year? Well, as we know, Donald Trump has, uh, after that escalator thing, the whole thing took off, and he was able to beat 16 different opponents in the course of this, surprising many people along the way. I think the fascinating thing about this is a year, a year later, Donald Trump, in the latest ABC polls, has a 70% unfavorable rating among the American public. Basically, what he started at last May, before this entire campaign was run. And I think, I mean, he's shown a... Uh, an unbelievable ability to navigate the Republican primary and Republican voters, but he's up into a situation where he has to get 50 million more voters, and most of those voters don't like him. And I think that's the problem for him going forward. He did very well in the first campaign, but this sort of Super Bowl campaign, he's starting off, I think, solidly, though smallly, solidly behind. And Mary, you can't help but look at the six weeks since he wrapped up the nomination and say that he's gone backwards in terms of uniting his own party, in terms of public perceptions. There was the, the, the episode where he was attacking the federal judge on his case over his Mexican heritage. Uh, and then he comes out of Orlando doubling down, even expanding his Muslim ban. What's the reaction been among Republicans? First of all, it certainly does not feel like six weeks. I'm going to have to go back and check your calendar because it feels so much longer than that, given all of the ups and downs that we've seen in what is really a short time. You mentioned, you know, after the, the firestorm over his comments about the, the, the judge involved in the Trump University case, there seemed to be like a couple days of relative peace, calm, hope and optimism. And then it all completely blew up again. Um, and the reaction up here has been uh, a, a mixed bag. I mean, in some ways, there's just a collective eye roll that happens on Capitol Hill. Um, a lot of Democrats, you know, will, will say that nothing Donald Trump says will, will surprise them at this point. I will say what is unusual is to be on Capitol Hill and find Republicans running away from you, physically running away from you, <laughs> as you try to ask them questions about their own 
presumptive nominee. And that is what you're seeing more and more. You know, Republicans are stuck between a rock and a hard place. And that's a position that Donald Trump has put them in, uh, because many, even those who come out and support him, say that they need to get behind him because, you know, as as Paul Ryan puts it, uh, essentially having a Republican president gives the GOP agenda the best chance of becoming a reality. But then Donald Trump continues to come out and say these these things, you know, doubling down on the Muslim ban, for instance, that most Republicans simply disagree with. So they're constantly having to do this delicate dance, uh, which leads all of us reporters up here to delicately try and dance, trying to get answers out of all of them. And they're running away from Mary Bruce. What's that about? I come know. On. Imagine this is not, that. I, I, I can't believe it. I need I need video evidence of this. <laughs> uh, and then at the same time, his reaction to the the the, the, the latest issue uh, um, an, an episode and tragedy in Orlando. Uh, that tweet that he fired off, Matthew, where he says he looks forward to talking to the NRA to make sure the terrorists aren't able to buy guns. The NRA seems as shocked as anybody else by this. Do you get a sense? I mean, is him taking on the NRA? Is this a, a shades of a populist Trump that's going to defy conventional wisdom? Does he even realize what he is saying when he when he goes off with a tweet like that that it reverses himself and goes against the party line? Well, the answer to that most obvious question, I don't think he realizes when he does stuff, the, manifest, the manifestations of what that means in the aftermath of it. I actually thought it was, wow, I think if he could make actually push the NRA to support a policy that's supported by 85 or 90 percent of the country, which is don't let people on the terrorist watch list buy guns, that would actually be an amazing situation for him. I think the trouble for Donald Trump is, is that he's gonna, he hasn't gotten the nomination yet, though he's the presumptive nominee. If he keeps doing things to make so many people in the elite circles and in the circles of the Republican sort of broad establishment uneasy in the course of this, and I think that this his sort of thought on the NRA could be another one of those building blocks to basically somebody confronting him, and I still think he's going to be the nominee, but it does put him on an unsettled ground going into a convention where he should be unifying at this po- at this point in time and actually every he was more unified he had the party more unified as you said 6 weeks ago than he does today and i think many people thought okay that was donald trump for the primary now he's going to turn presidential and it's going to be different which is what a lot of his campaign people told people he'll be different now and they've seen the same donald trump and i think that's what makes everyone in this process on the republican side uneasy and and Matthew, the, the, that extraordinary moment this week where he he says to the Republican Party, you know, sit down and shut up, essentially, just get out of my way. Yeah, and his and his campaign chairman this morning on the airs that basically said all the Republicans that are complaining ought to shut up, ought to go away and shut up. I don't. That's not helpful, obviously. I mean, we're having a debate about the Second Amendment now. We're having a question about the First Amendment. I think all of this is is creates this atmosphere where people feel like, or Republicans feel like, I should say. Is this the horse we fundamentally want to ride and go with, even though the delegates right now he has in this course is? And I think you add one more thing to this. It looks like Hillary Clinton in the last two weeks has built a small but solid lead, somewhere five, six, maybe seven points in the course of this. And so when you, if you're a U.S. Senate candidate, if you're a congressional candidate, if you're anybody that wants to preserve those bodies as a majority, you look at this and it makes you pause for a second as you go into this and wonder, is this the really the direction we should go? And Mary, let's talk about the Democrats for a second, because we're seeing the, the Democratic side wind down in pretty predictable, peaceful fashion. Bernie Sanders is continuing his fight on, but we know what, what ultimately it's going to look like. But they also have a, a kind of a flex of their muscle on the, on the Clinton side, a, a, an eight-figure buy, more than $10 million being spent now 
on battleground states. This seems like a very confident campaign. What's your sense? I I agree. That's a lot of money being spent ramping up. Uh, We're seeing those general election ads now coming out. And and you mentioned it it is as Sanders winds down a little bit, but he's not out just yet. Uh, Or at least he hasn't officially declared he's out just yet. And and that still leads a lot of questions about his supporters. You know, will they finally get on board? What does that look like? What does bringing, you know, the Democratic side together really look like in the weeks and months ahead? But certainly Hillary Clinton uh, feeling confident and, and, and jumping in full steam into the general election. All right. We're going to pause for a quick break right here. We have got Michael Eric Dyson coming up. We will be right back with powerhouse politics after this. Hey, think fast. Hey, what's this? The solution for your pain. Lidocare pain patch? Yep, the only non-water-based patch on the market blocks pain for up to eight hours. So it gives me eight hours of pain relief and stays dry? That's right. It's patent-pending technology, so it really is one of a kind. says here it's odor-free, ultra-flexible, dry, and light. The Lidocare pain patch from the makers of Blue Emu. For long-lasting relief, you can wear. Available at CVS. And we are back right now with Powerhouse Politics. We're pleased to be joined on the program by Michael Eric Dyson, a professor, an author, an activist, and he's uh, just written a new piece in The New Republic calling for a march on Cleveland. So, uh, Dr. Dyson, talk, talk us through this. What, what does this march look like? What's behind the idea of mass protests in Cleveland around the Trump nomination? Well, I think the Trump nomination has amplified some of the worst instincts in American society certainly in a generation, the xenophobia, the anti-Muslim belief, the anti-immigrant fervor, um, the the anti-Mexican ideals, ideas, and as well some of the animus toward black people expressed at his rallies and the like. So I think that those of us of good conscience must descend upon Cleveland because this is bigger than an election. The election is critical. It is the means by which we now argue over the future of this nation, to be certain, but at the same time, there's something extra-political, at least extra-electoral going on there, and that is that Donald Trump is appealing to the base instincts of American society, the lowest common denominator of bigotry and prejudice, and I think those things have to be uh, resisted, and those things have to be engaged uh, on, on the face of things. And you mentioned in your, in your essay the, the memories of 1968, and you say if it comes to that, so be it. Do you think it gets to that stage? Is that are you are you thinking it's likely, or is that just based on on your analysis of how police have reacted to protests in the past? Are we going to see violent clashes with police? Yeah, I think that may be in the offing. Uh, given the fact, I don't have much confidence in the restraint that uh, the police forces can and should exercise. Um, we've seen the kind of racial differential when applied to African American and Latino people versus you know, mainstream uh, white America, uh, the police seem to have a different mindset and outlook, although, of course, that's all, um, you know, uh, exacerbated by, you know, political forces where you've got progressive forces versus more reactionary forces or conservative ones. And so you put all that stuff into the mix and it's a toxic brew. Um, But I think that the fear that somehow there may be potential violence or that there may be aggression by the police cannot discourage or dissuade people of good conscience from linking arms and aims and coming together to say that we've got to oppose what this represents. We've got to speak our minds and say we don't agree with it. It's horrible for this nation, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent, and we've got to say so uh, in a way that America hears. 
speaking of violence, and this is this is Mary Bruce, uh, people will say there's got to be another way. Has it really come down to just this? Is there anything that you think the Republican Party can do at this point, given that you, as you write, the question is no longer whether Republicans will come to their senses. It's, it's about what people can do in response. Is there anything that the Republican Party can do at this point to try and, and rein in some of these concerns you're having? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and look, you know, Mitch McConnell grumbles and people say, well, his way is the best way. You know, he's not going to rubber stamp what Donald Trump is doing. But that's inside baseball. That's political shenanigans at the height. That's the kind of manipulation of symbols. But when it trickles down, so to speak, on the ground, there's not much resistance to Donald Trump. Paul Ryan capitulates, you know, by doing a weird amalgam of both acknowledging the racism that Donald Trump represents, but, oh, by the way, I still support him. With the failure of moral imagination at the top, the, the Republicans and conservatives like to speak about moral poverty, but boy, I don't know what's more impoverished than the inability to say, this does not represent us. We will not support this. You know, what Romney tried to do to a certain degree by saying this does not represent our best face, although some would say it's crocodile tears, because what the Republicans have essentially done is uh, created this monster that is Donald Trump. Now it's eating them alive. We must not forget, as I say in the article, that Frankenstein is the name of the doctor, not the monster. So Donald Trump has been incubated in a particular kind of womb of assaulting the so-called pathologies of black life, of resisting the problems uh, with Muslim Americans and what Islam represents. Now, there are legitimate critiques to be made of both of those groups and others, but the way in which the Republicans have gone about uh, their business has led to a lapsed engagement with more ennobling and uplifting American ideals of disagreement and debate that have gone, you know, that they oppose, um, you know, uh, Barack Obama tooth and nail. There are legitimate ideological and political reasons to do so, but the collective, you know, uh, consternation with him as a black man cannot be missed. And what also can't be missed is that these Republicans didn't have a problem, for the most part, when Donald Trump was leading the birther movement against Barack Obama. Where were their voices then? This doesn't represent us. This is not the Republicans at our best. So now that he's applied the same ideology, the same approach, the same nastiness to them and their party, all of a sudden there's hand-wringing and kvetching. So I think that Dow Duff protests a bit too much, and I'm not sure anything can be done at this point to stop, stop the juggernaut that is Donald Trump. Now, Trump obviously has tapped into some very uh, real anger and frustration Absolutely. out there. What happens even if Trump, for instance, were to, were to tone it down, get more in line uh, with the party message? What about his supporters? Where does all of this uh, frustration and anger that you're citing, where does that go? Yeah, that's a good point. It goes, you know, where it is, it is always gone. Uh, enormous police brutality against black and brown populations, rage and anger at African-American and Latino people and other uh, others like immigrants and the like, it, it gets rearticulated in our rage and anger against gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual, queer people. I mean, what happened in Orlando, even though it's under the rubric of terror and ISIS, what we really see is that this may have been a, a repressed gay man who's struggling with his own sexual identity, and the politics of the matter became a convenient foil uh, for his own, you know, uh, bruised spirit and soul and his own you know, agony in his own mind. So, you know, but, but again, that kind of stuff has been fed by the politics that we 
harbor in this country when women can't find an easy path to be able to negotiate their bodies or to say what happens to their bodies and states are now you know passing laws against legal abortion and the like i mean this is the kind of this is the re, the recrudescence of the culture wars of the 90s but on steroids and i think that where it goes is into some troubling manifestations of racial and ethnic and cultural and gender and sexual differences in this country that doesn't bode well for our future. So you have the convention coming up, and obviously it's a focal point for the issues that you're talking about. And Give us a sense of what you think it will look like. Would you like to see marches, uh, protests? There's always protests at conventions. What might be different about this? Are you talking to, to various groups that might be part of the organizing? Yeah, I think that what would be different here is that you know, the sense that even as you've already indicated, uh, the Republicans are at a loss as to what to do. This doesn't represent what they think is the best. So there might be some strange bedfellows there. It's not that, you know, the, the Romney forces or Stop Trump forces that were mobilized have ceased. They may be reborn in different fashion and form. It won't be in the streets with those of us who are progressives or liberals who are trying to resist it, but there will be sentiment and passion that will be empathetic uh, for those forces. And I think it, it takes the form of, yes, the protests that you've referred to uh, earlier in the streets with people raising their voices and signs and saying, what's going on here is not right. Some may even take the, the fight, so to speak, to the, to the convention hall itself uh, if they are effective and, uh, you know, in getting inside. Uh, who knows? Uh, but I think that the fact that people have to show up, have to say what they think is going on there is wrong and have to find a way to articulate it um, in peaceful but poignant and powerful fashion that this is the future of our country. Now, we always hear, as I say in my article, oh, this election is the most important of our lifetime, and so on and so forth, and things go on as usual. But I think there's a a feeling here that this is truly a, a watershed moment in American politics, and not just in American politics, but in terms of how we choose to be a nation together uh, as a people who are either unified around democratic ideals, small d, uh, and the urge to, to bring ourselves together to e pluribus unum out of many one, or we're going to fragment and fracture in such um, a horrible fashion. But to Rick's point, have you been speaking with other groups trying to get people uh, together to get on board with this? I mean, obviously, I think your point of view is shared uh, across many different uh, groups in voting blocks, various different you know advocacy groups. W- what kind of of people have you been speaking with about well, black to start church groups, uh, for instance, are are definitely on board. Uh, certain civil rights organizations, uh, you know, are thinking about having a presence there. So yeah, I mean, and 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 growing recognition among progressive grassroots movements, you know, in the environment. Uh, and certainly in terms of, you know, uh, people who deal with uh, a women's right to choose. So there's been a kind of uh, fragmented and fragile coalition uh, steadily coming together. It's in the planning stages now, but I think many people are thinking about showing up there. Uh, and that, along with the kind of spontaneous outbreak of, um, you know, protests that one cannot necessarily anticipate, uh, would make this a rather interesting uh, time in American politics. Finally, Dr. Dyson, you have such a, a marvelous sense of history and in, in, in the scholarship and the books that you've written. Have you thought about what Dr. King would make of this moment, not just the Trump phenomena, but right. everything that we've seen over the last year, maybe several years in American politics? Yeah. Yeah, I think he would be, um, he wouldn't be surprised, but he would be deeply disappointed. You know, he said at the end of his life, that most Americans were unconscious racists. That's not something we usually associate with Martin Luther King, Jr. 
He also began to argue for what he called aggressive nonviolence. He said to poor people across America, look, you don't have a job anyway. Why don't you come to the, to the nation's capital, to Washington, D.C., and block the pathways for traffic and sit you know, in on the lawns of the American you know, capital? Now, we don't associate that with him, but this, you know, he's the precursor uh, to a certain degree uh, to a kind of Black Lives Matter protest style that was a bit more aggressive, that was in your face, because the stakes were so high. And I think that he would think that what we've descended to is, is of such alien uh, nature to the best of the American ideas before which he was willing to, to sacrifice his life. And he would call us as a nation to greater forms of conscience uh, in public displays of, of anger even for what we see going on, and even a righteous, gentle, but powerful criticism of the sitting president, who, while he has been a remarkable man, broke, broken a serious barrier, Hillary Clinton's, you know, ascent as potentially the first female president won't be as remarkable or alien to others because Obama broke the barrier of otherness, perhaps the ultimate barrier of otherness in terms of this country's American original sin of race. Um, so he's been done remarkable things, bailed out the uh, automobile industry, saved the banks, uh, put the economy on a decent standing, and given us uh, universal health care, that his slowness to ascend the bully pulpit of race, his hesitation, his racial procrastination, has also damaged the ability of America to negotiate its racial differences. And I would never blame Barack Obama for the rise of Donald Trump, but race will be interpreted. The vacuum will exist, and unless you're willing to step into it with clear and distinct ideas about race, uh, the, the demagogic forces of American race will prevail over the reasonable voices of moderation and, if you will, of racial uh, uh, justice in this country. So I think that's where King would come out. All right. Michael Eric Dyson, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Check out uh, his essay in The New Republic. Thank you, Dr. Dyson. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's Rick Klein again. Before we hear from a pair of senators about the gun control debate raging on Capitol Hill, I just want to let you know that ABC News has a whole slate of podcasts you can listen to covering a whole bunch of topics. You can find them all at abcnewspodcast.com. So head over there, check them out, and let us know what you think. Back to the show. All right, we're back now with Powerhouse Politics. Earlier this week, I spoke to Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein and Republican Senator Richard Burr about gun control and specifically about the movement to get some kind of what's called no-fly, no-buy bill passed in the wake of the Orlando nightclub terror attack. Should someone who had suspected possible ties to terrorism, who they interviewed multiple times, be able to legally purchase firearms? Uh, if they're no longer under investigation, they're a United States citizen. They have every constitutional right that any other American does. That was his status. So you're saying that the system worked the way it should? It's worked. It worked the way it was designed. The legislation that we are going to submit, um, maybe as soon as yesterday, tomorrow, uh, would do. It would give the Attorney General the authority to be able to turn down the transfer of a weapon. What which gives means you a purchase? And what gives you any hope that this time around <clears throat> will be any different? We have the most people ever shot in the United States in one of these attacks. So um, it ought to bring the two sides together. 
you hear this renewed optimism up here on the Hill that there may be an opportunity to get something done in the wake of the worst mass shooting in American history. But but Rick and Matt, this is Groundhog Day ad nauseum up here. What do you think? Is this time going to finally make a difference? I think they're going to pass something. I think the, the question is, is whether it has any effect on w- these sort of mass killings going forward. And I think that, I mean, I, obviously everybody thinks something needs to be done. Everybody is tired, um, especially the president who's given how many speeches in the course of this and these aftermath of these shootings. And I think so. I think something will get done. But I'm, my fear is, is that we'll have another one of these. And p- folks are like, well, so I thought we passed something and it didn't do anything to stop it. Yeah, the, the devil is always in the details, right? And, and you hear lawmakers up here, everyone agrees suspected terrorists shouldn't be able to purchase guns legally. But how do you do that in a way that satisfies everyone, especially Rick in an election year? Yeah, you don't is the short answer. I, you know, I, I think th- there's something sort of numbing about the gun control debate in this country where you see it over and over again. You can predict the contours of the battle lines as they're drawn in the, the moments of sympathy. Uh, you know, w- w- there's very little to my mind, that that changes that equation so far. We've seen uh, until, you know, really until this is a voting issue and voters reward or punish politicians based on their votes on gun rights, I don't think anything substantial really happens. Uh, But this has been such such an extraordinary series of events out of Orlando because, to my mind, you're you're combining all of these kind of toxic mixes in, in politics. You've got the, the struggle against Islamic terrorism. You have the longstanding debate over gun control. Uh, you also have the, the fact that uh, this, the, the gunmen targeted this nightclub because they were gay, maybe because they were Hispanic as well. So you have all of these different strains that come together in, in very toxic ways. And, and then to my mind, uh, Matthew, I want your take on this because it, it, it doesn't seem to me that Donald Trump is the kind of candidate who is open to to nuance in a situation like this. Uh, he, he's not known for that. And the, the clarity of statements that he makes in, in reaction, I can see working to his benefit. I could also see a, a, a pretty sharp reaction against that. Well, I mean, I think you're right. I think Donald Trump is it's all gut and it's all visceral. And even in his response in immediate aftermath of this was basically a self-congratulatory response where he said, look, at I was the one pointing all this out. Aren't I great, basically, in the course of this and the aftermath of this? And the problem with the president on this, who has actually spoken very uh, well about all this, he is a very polarizing figure where half the country doesn't want to listen to him. The same is true of Hillary Clinton. Definitely true of, of Donald Trump. But you're right, this is an intersection of such emotional issues, guns, and I'm, I live in Texas. I, I'm talking from Austin today. I own five rifles in the course of this. Most people in my that are in the same as me want common sense, some common sense gun reforms in the course of this. But this environment and the way Washington works doesn't allow that and doesn't allow thoughtful, reasonable discussion. It forces everybody into their corners. And so even in this debate, it was one side says it's radical Islam, the other side says it's guns, and neither one wants to talk to each other or listen to each other in the course of this. And my fear is we're going to walk away from this one more time, an awful tragedy, and nothing substantively will change the dynamics gets done. Mary, you're up on Capitol Hill. What's your sense? Well, just, just to add to what Matt was saying, I think it's always so interesting because we talk a lot about, you know, lawmakers retreating back to their respective party corners. It's the same debate we've seen over and over again. There's a lot of talk about what lawmakers are doing, what the politicians are saying. What about the American people? Rick, you mentioned that, you know, you think it will take voters 
to, to finally maybe force some change in this. You see lawmakers up here. You know, we saw our, the 15-hour talkathon just last night. Everyone trying to drum up public support around this. You see the polling. Most Americans do support some kind of, uh, of stricter gun measures, and yet that doesn't seem to break through, which just I don't know if I'll ever fully uh, understand because normally when you see this kind of, of interest in some kind of a solution from the general public, lawmakers are, are pretty quick to act. In this case, when it comes to gun control, it's just such a uh, divisive, difficult issue that we continue to really not see any action despite uh, many best efforts up here on Capitol Hill. You talk about breaking through, and I've been struck by the reaction from uh, the, the members of Congress from Connecticut, Jim Himes. He had that very dramatic moment where he walked off the floor rather than to, to engage in that moment of silence. Silence. That is how the leadership of the most powerful country in the world will respond to this week's massacre of its citizens. Then his colleague over on the Senate side, Chris Murphy, uh, engaged in that kind of almost filibuster, whatever you want to call it, and the, the, the big demonstration on the Senate floor and overnight that seems to have resulted in getting some votes. I'm prepared to stand on this floor and talk about the need for this body to come together on keeping terrorists away from getting guns. They were, they were struck by Sandy Hook, and that was a moment now three and a half, almost four years ago, where it did seem like something different happened in this country. And if you're ever going to have the kind of action, the outrage over children, little children being struck down like that by a monster, that seemed to be the moment. Everything else brings it close, and, and you look for ways to break through with this. It makes me wonder, though, if Donald Trump has the potential to actually move the debate along. I mean, if he if he brings this to the NRA in an effective way, uh, I, it's not impossible to my mind to see the NRA feeling some sort of pressure given what Trump has said, what you've seen some Republicans, Mary, drop as well. And maybe that is the, the catalyzing force in a, in a weird sort of way to have some action on guns. Yet Donald Trump right now may actually be giving a lot of Republicans cover in some ways to come out uh, and maybe be willing to compromise a bit more uh, on some of these stricter gun measures. It's interesting. A lot of Republicans that I spoke with yesterday, I mean, even Lindsey Graham told me he applauds Donald Trump for saying he's going to meet with the NRA, for saying that, that suspected terrorists shouldn't be able to buy guns. But again, it's how you do it. And that's always the problem up here. When it comes to the big picture, everyone's in agreement. It's just a matter of how you do that in a way that can satisfy both parties and their bases. And once again, we're right in the thick of it. Matthew, last thoughts from you yeah. on, on, on Orlando, on guns, and how, and how this plays in the presidential well, I think we're in such a, a, a obviously we've talked about a polarizing divisive time. There is a cultural uh, battle going on and both sides look across the other side and don't seem to recognize them as part of America or the part of America they want. And this is all Orlando, just like what happened in Ferguson, just like the Confederate flag uh, conversation that went on. All of these things occur. It's like dropping dry ice in a bucket of water and it all bubbles over it. I think we are in that moment. If I were the NRA, I would say, yes, we need to do something. But my guess is the NRA may lean in that direction. But then the process, as Mary knows, the process of actually writing a law, I think, is where it all gets bogged down. I think you're right about that, that cultural divide that animates so much of this. All right, that will do it for this week's edition of Powerhouse Politics. Please take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, write us a review, 
Tell us what you think. Tell us even what you think about Jonathan Carl, who I don't think we missed at all today. I mean, not even a little bit. John who? It's weird. I I didn't miss his presence at all. But if you like the podcast, tell your friends about it. If you don't like your podcast, just keep it to yourself. You can tweet us using the hashtag PowerhousePolitics. Ask us questions. We'll respond to them next week. Don't forget, you can check out a bunch more ABC News podcasts. It's a great menu of options over at abcnewspodcast.com. For Mary Bruce and Matthew Dowd, I am ABC's Rick Klein, and we will talk to you next week.